Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. Now, one of the great joys afforded us on the Emperor Podcast by increasing the output of spoiler specials, and thank you once again for subscribing, is that we are no longer confined to covering your big old blockbusters. Oh, you'll still get plenty of those, of course, and stay tuned for Godzilla vs. Kong with Adam Wingard, which will be up next week. But we can also pay attention to the smaller films that might ordinarily have slipped through our net of flicks. And one such film is getting that treatment today. It is Francis Lee's Ammonite, in which Kate Winslet plays Mary Anning, a fossil collector and paleontologist, the inspiration for Ross from Friends in so many, many ways, who embarks on an affair with a younger friend, Charlotte Murchison, played by Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan. And joining me to discuss it today are two of the finest fossils I could dig up, Terry White. Outrageous. (laughs) Dear Lord. Uh, Well... Uh, this is my last podcast, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's been nice. It's been it's nice been knowing nice. you, Chris. There's a hitman outside your front door right now. Anyway, Terry White and Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you both? Hello. I mean, I thought I was here to talk about Godzilla versus Kong, so this <laughs> yeah. is a crushing disappointment. What did you think about Godzilla versus Kong? I- I'm genuinely intrigued to know what did you th- what did you think of it? Shit. <laughs> Were you looking for more erudite explanation and analysis, Chris? So there's a bit where the big monkey hits the big dinosaur. I mean, I don't understand what more you want from life. I know, I know. Yeah. Like, I mean, they turned on a few of the lights this time, so um, that made me happy. <laughs> mm. Well, listen, Terry will not be on the Godzilla vs. Kong spoiler special, although... I kind of want her to be now. (laughs) (laughs) That would be be shite, shit, rubbish. Uh, But there you go. I'll just just drop this into next week's show. But before we get into Ammonite, we are here to talk about Ammonite. That's here from the man who made it, the writer and director Francis Lee. This is his follow-up to his scintillating debut, God's Own Country, and in some ways continues that film's thematic journey. Terry spoke to him recently over Squadcast, and this is what it sounded like. Do please. Enjoy. We are joined by Francis Lee on the Empire Spoiler Special podcast. We are here today to talk about the incredible Ammonite. Francis, hello. Are you ready? Hello, Terry. I'm ready. Gird your loins. We're going in. Okay. Okay. So let's start. We're going to talk about the main themes, uh, some of the specific scenes, characters, plot development, everything. But I want to start talking about isolation because I think this film is really fascinating in the sense of something you could never have predicted which is it coming out in the time of Covid but this film has something really interesting to say about isolation. For you what is it about this film and isolation? I think Kate's character the way she's isolated but I'm also interested in it's clearly a, a theme in your work because it was one of the major themes of your first film God's Own Country. Yeah, I think I think this I think you're right. I think that this film has at its heart um a theme of isolation and I think loneliness within that. Um I guess I you know, I I write and make films per, about very personal things to do with myself and I think those themes are things that I'm still you know figuring out for myself and and the the isolation that I can feel either physically or emotionally. And I think it, it's, it's, it feels a very rich space for me to explore and, and to find characters in these situations to, to really dig into 
And touch is really interesting as as well within kind of that sense of isolation. So the moment when Charlotte touches Mary Anning for the first time, can you talk a little bit about that scene and kind of what happens to Mary in that moment? Yeah, so it, it comes it comes after Charlotte's um, being poorly and has had to stay at Mary's house and Mary's looked after her and Charlotte's been unconscious. And then Charlotte gets better and um, and she comes down and wants to go out for a walk and Mary's working and she just very gently. And I think from Charlotte's perspective, without any kind of endowment, touches Mary's shoulder. And and Mary has a very specific reaction. And I think it's the tenderness that, mm. it, it, well, anyway, it's a combination between the tenderness of that touch and the fact that it is a touch. Because, you know, Mary, as we've said, is isolated. She's shut down emotionally. Um, there is no um, physical contact she has with anybody. And I think when you're really starved from that kind of physical affection, the, the the simplest and gentlest of touches can can mean so so much. Do you know what it reminded me of? The scene in God's Own Country where he cuts his hand. Oh yeah. That not the sex scene in God's Own Country. Everybody I saw talking about a specific thing talked about that, and he sucks the the dirt or whatever out of his hand to make it kind of sterile almost. And it was the what the tenderness with which he does it. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, I think, yeah, for both of those characters, for Johnny in God's Own Country and Mary in in Ammonite, you know, their their lives are fairly cold and brutal, and there's very there's very few moments of a of a of softness or of a caress or of a touch, a light touch, and I and I think that both of those moments, you know, speak volumes about where those two characters are at at that specific time. I think the other thing they share and your work shares is a sense of kind of showing sexuality without shame. So, Mm. you know, people may think, oh, God's Own Country is a, I think I've seen it called a gay romance, but it's, it's actually class is really at the forefront of that story and isolation, like we've talked about, and they're just two men who happen to be in love and um, there's a sense of that with mary and charlotte which is their two women who who love each other but the, the sexuality you seem to be interested in isn't one bound up in shame well no it hasn't been so far um <laughs> that doesn't mean that you know i'm, I'm working on this project at the moment actually that ha- that that deals with that again centers around um queer sexuality and class um, unsurprisingly. Um, but actually, it's slightly different because it is looking at it from a shame point of view. Mm. And that's been really fascinating because up to this point, you know, I guess, again, for me as a, as a person, I felt like I had dealt with an awful lot of stuff around my sexuality and mm. shame. But, but of late, you know, that shame has come back and has started to infect me. And I wanted to look at why that was and what Mm. was going on. But in these two stories, definitely, it wasn't about the the difficulties of sexuality. It was much more around the difficulties of, you know, loving and being loved. 
And do you think that's an important experience to be represented on screen? Because arguably there are, you know, types of same-sex relationships shown on screen and they often are to do with shame and struggle. Do you think it's important to show the kind of array of experiences, including ones that are just about love? I mean, I think so, because, I, you know, I think that it, it's too limiting only to ever show one side of something. Um, and I think it's really important that we have, you know, lots of stories, particularly around sexuality or, or, or race or work around working class themes or disability, you know, that, that just isn't, I guess, the white heterosexual middle class worlds that I think we've we've we fully investigate all the time in society so I think it's really I think it's to me it feels really important that we get the myriad of of stories around all all different things well because class is the other thing that you are fascinated by I think I could go so far as to say can you talk about why that is and and the importance class played here in Ammonite yeah, I think again. I think again. You know, I I think my obsession around class is because it's something that I've I, I was born into. I guess a working class family in the north of England. Um, I've I've lived through that in terms of you know what that culture is for me and what that has meant for me as a person um, trying to do different things and and looking at it. I guess I. I see lots of my personality traits coming out of of that class. I, you know, often, often I will have a meeting and people will, you know, not really listen to what I'm saying. Not because what I'm saying is not right, but because of the way in which I'm saying it. Because I don't, mm. I haven't, I don't have that kind of way of debating or managing situations from a from a polite middle class way. And mm. so I think that I think that class still manifests within me all the time and I think it may, and therefore it makes it something that I want to keep investigating in my work. And do you think it's still harder for working class people? Well, this is actually this shouldn't even be a question. I can't believe I'm even phrasing this as a question. <laughs> it is harder, right, for working class filmmakers and creatives to be able to work and make films such as these at this level oh completely completely and you know and i think i think it's 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 about opportunity and finance and confidence as well or or it definitely was in my case and you know when you think about so when i made god's own country before I went off to shoot God's Own Country, I was working full time in a in a manual job in a scrapyard, and I did that because I it was the only job I could get. Firstly, and second of all, I needed the money to to pay my rent and stuff. But I was having to do that job full time as well as writing, meeting yeah. HODs, auditioning actors, all the things that you need to do to prep a film. Yeah. Whereas you know some contemporaries who were making their first films at that time that I knew came from a different background that was, you know, had had more financial stability in it. So they weren't having to do their money job and prep their film. Mm-hmm. And so could dedicate everything to, to, to their work. 
And so I think there are many kind of hurdles still for people from working class backgrounds um, to try and break in and not just break in, you know, um, on on God's, although God's own country was, you know, a a success and, and took money and played all over the world. I didn't earn any more money from it. So, mm. so at the end of that film, it wasn't like I had a pot of money then to yeah. sustain me, to move on, you know, to think about what I wanted to do next or take my time or whatever it was. I knew I had to move on to making another film pretty quick because mm. it was the only way I was going to earn any money to to sustain myself. There seems to be a similar kind of thread with Mary. The economic necessity is really important to her story. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, what I found very fascinating about her was at the time there were other fossil hunters, but they were generally middle class and they did it as a hobby. Um, Mary Anning did it because obviously she was fascinated by it and she was incredibly good at it, but also to put food on the table and to pay the rent. And that was, that to me felt like a very, very different viewpoint of the work then. You know, she had to she had to be out on those beaches, come what may, in order to survive. And within that patriarchal society, I was thinking about Charlotte's husband, who's obviously dreadful. Um, and you know, and and that that world you created, that very oppressive world where he's you know he's very kind of condescending to Mary. But then when he's at dinner with Charlotte, there's that brilliant line where he, he orders for her and and says plain white fish baked no sauce no sauce um, <laughs> and how, how important was was it creating that patriarchal society and and do you have to i suppose be careful not to make it too almost like two broad brush strokes like but create it convincingly yeah i mean it was re- it was super important to me to contextualize mary and the world and that was patriarchy you know that was that was a class riddled patriarchal society and and I think what I tried to do with it was rather than make it a big headline, you know, this society is really hard and bad. I tried to make it the, about personal stuff. So when it comes to the scene where Roderick, you know, so I thought, well, wh- where does he take control? How do we see that? And I thought ordering dinner was a perfect example of how mm. how his maleness takes over and controls mm. the situation. Um, in the way in which he tries to with Mary, but of course Mary's very aware of it and is a lot cleverer than he is. So yes. so can kind of put him down in various ways. Both Mary and Charlotte were real people, and obviously we've said this wasn't a biopic, but how much how much of it is real? It's just the timeline, I think you said you'd altered a little bit, right? Right. So so everything about it is factually correct, apart from there is no evidence whatsoever that Mary Anning ever had a relationship with anybody, whether that be a man or a woman. There, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. And the second thing I did um, was mess with the timeline around Charlotte. So Charlotte in real life was older than Mary. And they visited Mary earlier, uh, Charlotte and Roderick. But I wanted to look at a film with each character dealing with a sense of loss. And I and in this society, for a woman like Charlotte, who is upper middle class, her, basically her job in life was to get married and have children. 
produce mm. airs. And I wanted to think about what what it would look like or, or what it would be like for a woman like that if she couldn't fulfill those tasks, if you like. And so I need so I needed Charlotte to be of a childbearing age. And that's why I made her younger than she actually was in real life. But everything else is is pretty factual, where Mary lived, how she worked, the, the, her condition, her mum. Mary and Charlotte were friends. Mary went to London once, and it's supposed that she stayed with the Murchisons. All of that is very factual. Um, it, it was mainly the timeline. When you decided to, well, when you wrote this same-sex relationship and you had the two women in love, did you think there might be a backlash from people questioning, you know, well, do you have, people want a proof, right? Well, show me that she had a had a relationship yeah. with women. Well, I mean, what happened, it was really extraordinary, Terry, because obviously, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this before. And before I'd even shot one frame of this film, or indeed before anybody had read the script, really, there was a half a page article in one of um, the British right wing press kind of who tried to whip up a storm about me claiming that Mary Anning was a lesbian, which, which I found really extraordinary because nobody had seen the film and nobody. I, well, I hadn't made the film. I hadn't <laughs> shot it, you know. And so and I thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, I, I, it was very surprising. And, and what's so surprising about all of this debate is that there's no evidence whatsoever that Mary Anning ever had a relationship with a man. Mm. But on top of that, there are fictionalized novels about Mary Anning. There's a, there's a few of them. And in a couple of them, it is suggested that she had a relationship with a man in those novels. But, but there was no backlash. Nobody complained. And also it made me look at history and how we report history, who tells history. You know, it's, it became apparent that where, where there was absolute n- no concrete proof of um, a same-sex relationship, heterosexuality is always presumed. You know, when, when we know people are bisexual, asexual, um, gay, lesbian, but the, but there was absent. But there's there's nobody ever thinks outside of the heterosexual um, world. It was really it was really fascinating. And I wanted to talk about uh, the sex scene, which I don't want to obsess about because the way that people obsess about female sex scenes on screen is is kind of bizarre. But I thought the way you shot it and the way it was kind of choreographed was really interesting i think a lot of um female sex scenes are often quite pornified in lots of ways and this this wasn't at all can you talk about kind of the filmmaking choices and how you i suppose both choreographed it and shot it yeah so so like you i you know i don't want to i don't want to make pornified um sex scenes so so first of all it always starts in the script and because i because in this film similarly to god's own country the characters weren't people who could verbally articulate how they felt. I have to tell the story through pictures. So these scenes are very important to tell us where these characters are at and where the relationship is at. And so I write them, you know, very carefully and, and, and with lots of detail in the scripts. And then when we come to shooting them, it's, it's, it's always very, very collaborative with the actors. You know, we, we, we talk a lot and I do a lot of listening to them. 
about how they feel, what they think, how they feel it should go, what the choreography should be. And we, you know, we, we, we build them together and we make sure that what we're doing is that this scene is telling us something about the character and the story. And then, and then, you know, when it comes to shooting it, we obviously do all the things that you're meant to do, which, which I police very strongly. You know, you, you have a totally secure, safe set, all monitors are off. Um, you only shoot it once, maybe twice, but, but no more. Um, but it was for me. It was about both of these characters expressing themselves physically and intimately, and it was about their journey, not about the not about the viewer in a sense. You know, seeing it as titivating or sexy or whatever it was. It was much more about what they were experiencing. Well, it seemed very, to me, raw, but also very real in terms of how people genuinely do behave when they have sex as opposed to the way in which we'd like to assume they do if you see what i mean you know that bit in friends this is going to be a weird thing you know that bit in friends where ross and rachel see a video of themselves having sex and at first they're like oh great and then they're like oh my god is that what i really look like but there's a, yeah. there's a level of realism i think in in the sex scenes yeah i hope so you know i think you, you know, I don't think it's about it's about beautifying it, objectifying it, or, or any of those things. I think it's about what are what are these characters communicating with each other by having this intimate moment, and mm. and it's being rigorous with with that from a from a character driven point of view. I think. And I want to talk a little bit about how you built Mary with Kate because I think it's it's an astonishing performance, and I think yeah. it's fair to say Kate is completely transformed oh yeah i i agree um you know i think if anybody was in any doubt that kate winslet isn't at the top of her powers as an mm. actor they sh they should see this film um yeah it was extraordinary so i worked with her for maybe four or five months before the shoot and we we built up the character from scratch from the moment she was born until the moment we first see her in the film we learn absolutely every single detail about her you know, right down to what color, what what was her favorite color? What did she like to eat? Where was her favorite chair? Everything, you know, all her past relationships, her school, her relationships with her family, everything. But of course, a part of that, part of that process of, of developing her was the work, was Mary Mary's work. And it was really important to both Kate and myself that Kate knew as much as she possibly could about that work. So Kate went out onto the beaches of Lyme Regis for weeks and weeks and weeks and learned how to fossil with a wonderful mm. fossil expert called Paddy Howe and used, used very similar tools that Mary would have had and wore the boots that we decided that Mary would wear in the film. And, and she became really, really proficient at it, really, really good. But of course, part of that process was her being out on the beaches all day. So she got cold and she got wet and she got tired and, and it started to alter her physically. And that really helped us with, with the physicality of Mary, what Mary would, would look like, what, how she would walk, how she would use her body. Yeah, it was really, it was odd one day, Terry, because like, I like a very small set and I'm quite private and what have you. And one day I was shooting a, a rare scene that Kate isn't in. 
And um, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw I saw somebody walking around the set, and I turned to the first AD and said, "Who's that on my set? Who are they? What do they want?" And he looked over and he went, "That's Kate." And it was because she wasn't in her Mary. She wasn't in character. She wasn't in a costume. She wasn't in her makeup. She was Kate, and I didn't recognize her. And mm. and that and it was it was weird. It's weird to say it, but it took me a while to transition to talking to Kate as Kate, as opposed mm. to talking to Kate as Mary. It was it was a, it's such a brilliant transformative performance. Well, and and you gave her some very specific direction in terms of her movements, right, and how she kind of used her body and her hands specifically. Yeah. So Kate's Kate's very front footed emotionally. You know, she tells you how she's feeling. She tells you everything, and she she uses her hands a lot to when she's talking. You know, she's very physical. But of course, Mary, the Mary we created was all about stillness and silence. And so um, so Kate used to joke, actually, towards the end of the shoot, I'd go up to her at the beginning of the scene and I'd go, now, and she'd go, yes, I know. Sit still, don't move, <laughs> don't speak, and look miserable. <laughs> um, but it was about it was it was it was such a brilliant thing, you know, that Kate like, trusted me to to orchestrate her performance and to really, you know, find that stillness and mm. to find that rhythm that was so different to Kate as a person. Yeah, it was it was super super satisfying. And she did, I know, live alone for part of the shoot, which she she has said was incredibly rare. I think the first time she'd done it, which must have kind of helped her find that stillness, but also that sense of isolation and and loneliness for somebody who's normally surrounded by people. Yeah, I mean, she's she Kate's family are super, you know, are very very important to her, and and she those are the people she spends all her time with, really. Um, but for this, she just wanted to detach herself and to to find that space. So when she finished work, she wasn't going home, and she was straight back into normal life. She she was kind of you know keeping in that kind of space of Mary Anning. Um, but you know, I I was very aware of that and and tried to obviously be there for her so she didn't get too lonely. You mentioned a lot earlier in relation to um, Mary, which I think is really important. And I think there's an, an important character in this we haven't talked about yet, which is Fiona Shaw's character, who the it's it's suggested quite heavily that there was a previous romance there. Could you talk a little bit about that character, but also? about the great Fiona Shaw, because I'm sure that was a, a thrill. Yeah, so Elizabeth Philpott, um, Fiona Shaw plays. And Elizabeth Philpott was a, as a, was, is a real person, was a real person, was a middle-class woman who lived in Lyme Regis, who was a fossiler, and she had her own museum of fossils that people would go and look around in Lyme Regis. And she also made a very famous salve, cure-all salve. But she was middle class, so she wasn't dependent on the work for, for money. And she lived up the hill in Lyme Regis, in, in a nicer area than where Mary lived. And um, she took Mary under her wing when Mary was younger and, and they, they went out together to fossil and what have you. And then there was some, again, it's not, we don't know why, but there was some falling out that they had. 
and they grew apart a bit. And yeah, I kind of took that and ran with it a little bit because there's no evidence again that Elizabeth Philpott ever had a relationship with a man or a woman. And then Fiona Shaw, yeah, it was brilliant working with Fiona. You know, it, it, she's only in a few scenes, but she she was such a delight to work with, so intelligent, so committed. And again, you know, Fiona Shaw has been working all her life in theatre and film, and, and I've only made one film, and for her to come and trust me, to work with me and to listen to me, and to play, I think, was, again, such a huge honour. She, she's a, a really cool person. In order to talk a little bit about the kind of landscape you created, because it is a kind of incredibly beautiful but brutal landscape, and that's created, you know, the the I, I think I've said to you before, the use of light in this film, especially on those beach scenes when they're there together, is extraordinary. The cinematography, the sound design. Can you talk about creating that landscape and what you kind of had in mind as you built it throughout the film? Landscape is really important to me, is in that sense of looking at how people live and work in a landscape and how that landscape forms them or sometimes dictates what, how they live and work. And uh, the reason I was so fascinated by this particular landscape was because I don't, you know, as a person, I've never been drawn to the seaside. I've always found the seaside a little bit depressing. Mm. And that's, that's I, and, it, and it's taken me to make this film to work out what that was. So, so creating it for me was, was about you know, finding the atmosphere, finding that what it, trying to evoke what the cold feels like and the wind feels like and the constant mud. And it was fantastically helped by a brilliant soundscape, really, mm. let's call it, by Johnny Byrne, who was just mm. wonderful. And, and we built that sound so carefully and orchestrated every wind and every bird song and and what have you. And as you say, beautifully, beautifully shot by Stefan Fontaine, the cinematographer. Yeah, poor Stefan. At the beginning, I did warn him. I did say, you know, we, we had the, ca- the camera was all handheld. I think it was only on, on legs, a couple of shots. And I did warn him at the beginning, I like to do long takes. But I think it really exhausted him because he was literally um, holding that camera for very, very long takes, for which I felt quite sorry for him. <laughs> now I want to talk about the end of the film mm-hmm. about what well I, w- I want to know what it means because I've <laughs> watched this film more than once and I the first time I saw it I felt desperately sad and I thought the that the end wasn't hopeful and then I watched it the second time and I completely thought it was full of hope and I I veer between the two and I can't work out which one I feel most strongly but I want to kind of go back before them for for when Mary comes to London and the confrontation in in the bedroom and there's a line she says and, and she rejects kind of what Charlotte's offering her which is a room in the house um they can be together um and she says I feel that I'm at a great disadvantage I well, t- well, tell me what it means because I took it to mean I felt like she was attempting to kind of put these heteronormative framework around their relationship and bring her into her almost heterosexual arrangement, and she didn't feel comfortable within those confines. And, and but 
but you tell me what it what it means and if i'm mild <laughs> off which i probably am no i think i think you know i think you're 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 kind of there terry because for me it feels like that charlotte has charlotte has an image of mary and hasn't fully thought about who mary is and what mary's life is and what mary's life means to her and in a sense she yes she's offering her this lovely room in this beautiful house and and almost like she's going to be taking care of her in a way but she hasn't figured in what mary wants or who mary is or what mary or what what's important to mary and so it's it's almost like she's doing what her husband's done to her which is to as you say box her off in this kind of heteronormative setup and i think that mary is defiantly independent and actually, however difficult her life is, it's her life, and that that she has got great things out of it, and 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 feels in control of it. Which in in eighteen forties Britain, you know, it was rare that women were in control of their lives. You know, mm. that that it was men who controlled women's lives, but Mary is fully in control of her life. So I think there's a lot of that. And then for me, the end when they're in the museum. I don't know, it was this this idea that in relationships you can get to points, however much you love each other and however much you want it to work, where there's a miscommunication or you've just got something really wrong, you've fucked up. And and there's a there's that moment where you you're gonna talk about it or you're gonna come together. And it almost feels like a beginning to me, where you're gonna either go I, I'm not going to be open enough to be able to see my way through this and therefore the relationship's going to end or we're going to be honest and we're going to mm. we're going to be open and we're going to you know we're going to try we're going to try and work this out and we believe in each other enough to work it out mm. and we're and we're and we're, we're going to allow ourselves to be vulnerable to to be able to do that and so that is what I think that's where they're at at the end. I, in my head, I like to think that they they sort it out and they go, you know, Charlotte goes, I'm sorry, I fucked up. And Mary goes, I know you did. And maybe I overreacted. I'm sorry. Can we talk about it? And And they talk about it and they say, you know what? I like you enough to sort this out. Let's try. Do you think they could ever truly get past the class issue? Because that's... Again, that scene in the bedroom, I was thinking it's all so middle class and it's all there's a lot of appearance and she she hasn't realised how important Mary's work is to her and and supporting herself and having a life that she built for herself rather than being gifted a room in somebody else's house who has money. That I I wondered if they'd ever really be able to get over the class difference. Um that's a really good question. I don't know. I'd like to, you know, it, it reminds me of that ending of, you know, the E.M. Forster novel, Morris. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it suggested that they do get over the class problem there. Or Edward Carpenter and, and his boyfriend, George, they, they managed to get over the class problem. I don't know. I, I, Yes, I know exactly what you mean. I think that there, there, there are issues and problems that are inherent in that dynamic. I don't. I, maybe I'm just an old sop, soppy romantic, but I, I like to think that, you know, if 
Vivian and um, I can't remember his name, Richard Gere in Pretty Woman. Edward. <laughs> Edward. If they can transcend their, their situations, then I'm pretty sure anybody can. Yeah, no, it is because the first time I watched it, I was devastated and was like, oh, my God, they just couldn't make it work. And then the second time I saw it, maybe I was in a different headspace. I saw hope and the look they exchange across the case. I thought, oh, that's that feels like the, the opening of the door to compromise. You always know you're going to leave it quite open in terms of its it, we've just talked about it for 10 minutes. It's it's open to interpretation. I think, well, though, again, that's a really good question. It became apparent when I was making the film in the edit that this was the right ending. This was the right thing to do. And so then it became, there wasn't, you know, it didn't, I didn't feel like there was a question there for me. And I felt that these characters were so complex and had gone on such journeys that to try and sew it up in a mm. sense of it didn't work or it worked didn't feel like it fitted with the complexity of what they'd gone through or the worlds in which they lived. So so to me, this this very quickly felt like it was the right thing to do. It's a magnificent ending. Mm, and I'm sure, I'll, I'm sure I'll watch it seven more times and have uh, seven different perceptions of the ending. <laughs> if I call you up crying next week, you know what's happened. <laughs> okay, thank you. Until, of course, like I write Ammonite 2. Then... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're just doing a Sylvester Stallone and leaving it all open aren't you for uh, for another for another 18 films exactly exactly although very sadly I have to say Mary Anning died not long after yeah. this film was set she she died of breast, breast cancer not long after only a couple of years after why, and why did you say at this kind of stage of her life it was a deliberate choice to set it at what is she for late 40s mid 40s mid 40s um it was because i wanted to look at somebody so mary had started off but you know her father died when she was 10 thrust into poverty then through her life and through her work when and fossils had become fashionable she'd earned good money and and things felt good but then fossils fell out of favor and she had all this knowledge and had made all these incredible scientific discoveries, but yet she was literally hand to mouth trying to survive. And I wanted to look at what that might feel like for somebody after they'd been at their highest point um, mm. to, to see where, you know, where she was at in terms of her work, how she felt about herself, the world, and what have you. And she was struck by lightning, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she, when she was a child, well, I don't know, maybe when you watch it again, Terry, um, the Fiona Shaw character, Elizabeth Philpott, does call her Lightning Mary. Lightning Mary, yeah. And, um, and when, when Mary I was a baby... I thought you were fast on her feet. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Mary was a baby, um, her mum and dad had taken her to a travelling horse show. And... Um, Mary's mum had given Mary to a friend to hold while she went off. And this lady was holding Mary and a freak storm started. So the lady ran to shelter under some trees with two other ladies and lightning struck the tree and killed all three of the ladies outright. But baby Mary survived. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. 
tail. Yeah. And it marked her out as different from the beginning. Yeah. And does that feed into kind of your view of Mary? Because I imagine if you, if you are given that almost like a mystique or a mythology from being a child, that I can imagine that could lead to feel incredibly, not just different, but incredibly outside and, and yeah. very much like an outsider. Yeah, all of that led to me to this idea that Mary was an outsider. On top of the fact that, you know, again, in this society, she never got married. She was a businesswoman. Mm. She was a scientist. All of these things to me marked her out as outside of society as it was then. Which then actually makes makes sense when, when Charlotte's trying to bring her into her society via living in this room, in this house in London, that you can imagine how alien and probably frightening that would feel to Mary in that moment. Completely. And, you know, I, I, I remember talking to Kate about it um, when we were shooting those scenes in London because the house was so beautiful and everything in it was so beautiful. And I remember saying to Kate, you know, think about if you sit down on one of those lovely, you know, silk um, upholstered chairs. What happens if you've got a spot of dirt on your dress and you leave it there? Yeah. How will you feel? And so it was all this idea that she just didn't feel comfortable in all that lovely, lovely finery. Mm. Right. Well, we are out of time. We could talk all night, all day we and could. all of the night. Um, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Terry. Oh God, I do. Feel, I feel hopeful again about the ending. Now you've said that. I, I feel hope so. well. I hope so. It's it, yes. It, I tell you what it was. There's a look of there's a little, and I may have imagined it. There's a, a a look on Kate's face that I I took as kind of resignation when they exchanged the look, and I and it felt like it was just I ca- I can't do this. I I can't do this. And Charlotte wants her to so desperately, but she just can't make that extra step. Yeah. I think, uh, but I, I mean, I also don't underestimate Charlotte for going, okay, fuck it, I'm moving to Lyme Regis. Okay, so that was Francis Lee. Uh, Terry, He's you've spoken to him loads about this movie, haven't you? You, you did the magazine article. And, yeah. Were you on set of this? Uh, no, no, no. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think I've spoken to him about 93 times uh, <laughs> over the course of, uh, of the film's production um, and in post and, and since release. Yeah, he is an incredibly passionate and singular filmmaker, and I could talk to him for hours and hours and hours. What was his beard situation when you spoke to him last? His beard is, I mean, it's always been epic. I saw a picture of him on the internet, not that I sit up at night Googling um, uh, directors, (laughs) but if I did, I would Google Francis Lee, and I found a picture (laughs) of him without a beard, and it completely freaked me out. His beard is large... And sumptuous, <laughs> in and charge, just incredible, incredible. Uh, let me see. Basically, Francis a character Lee in the movie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, I haven't seen a picture of them without a beard, but uh, yeah, it's he's. It, it, there's a Peter. Oh, I have now. Oh, mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, completely different person. There's a young Peter Mullen aspect to him. I find. Do you, what, what do with you think? With beard or without beard? With with beard. With beard. With beard. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. Um, Without less so. He looks, I mean, he he looks so distinguished 
which mm-hmm. I think is entirely the facial hair. And by the way, I'm glad to see we're digging into the really important parts of this film. <laughs> Everybody, do we're 12 minutes in. Uh, expect this to continue in, for at least another nine. In fairness, the most of this 12 minutes was me talking about podcasts it I will was, never make. It was. Um, that these people will never hear. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't like to be reductive in any way, shape or form, but Helen, fit director? I, I would say so, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the great unwritten feature of our careers, Chris. But um, See, you but, yeah. say great unwritten feature. Now I'm thinking, fuck it, let's do a podcast. <laughs> Called Fit Directors. <laughs> fit would directors. we interview them or would we interview people who think they're fit? TBD. Or anyway, would you get handsome directors <laughs> and make them run up and down a hill to see who is the fittest fit director? F- fittest fit director. Oh, my God. I mean, that would, that would actually be Zack Snyder. Do you think? I think yeah. Chad Stahelski or Mark Neveldy might give him a run for his money. Mm. I mean, he's been doing that 300 workout for a while now. Do you know what I mean? So He has, but he he's, is He's going to be up there with them. That's true. Yeah. Well, Whereas you know, think- honestly, if it comes to it, we'll just have to get them to compete. So be it, guys. Sorry. If they have to wrestle, then so be it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, welcome to the Ammonite Spoiler Special. Oh, God. Um, so this is Francis Lee's uh, second movie. Uh, follow up to God's Own Country. Let's start off with something that we talked about a little bit on the regular podcast when we reviewed this movie, which is that it has fantastic performances at its heart. It's a very well-made movie. It's a very, very good movie. But it it was left out of the Oscar and BAFTA conversation to a great degree, uh, or entirely, pretty much. Why? What, what happened there? What, why? Do you have a, a, a feeling, a theory about why this movie was was overlooked? I mean, it kind of works thematically, much as it pains me to say. It, it sort of fits, <laughs> sort of fits with the movie itself. But, but I do think it, you know there is something there. It is unassuming in a way. It's not clamoring for your attention. It's it's although so did so was God's Own Country. It, you know, again, it wasn't a film that was kind of shouting about how important it was. It just just was important, and I think that's true here too. But maybe it it is just too quiet and too sort of reserved to have caught their attention. I, I genuinely don't know why. I, when I watched it, I was uh, I would have put money down, and I am not a betting woman, on at least Kate Winslet getting a nomination, but probably both of them, and mm. and more accolades for Francis Lee. And and I know it's been a competitive year for small, brilliantly made indie movies in a way that it isn't always. You know, some some years there seems to be one or two who are kind of anointed as the the carriers of the indie flag. And that mm. has not been the case this year, which is something to really celebrate. But I, I, I am genuinely at a loss to really understand why this isn't one of the the, the films in the conversation. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Helen, because I think there is a quietness and a stillness to this film and I mean I think this is Kate Winslet's best performance entirely it's the least Kate Winslet performance and it's also entirely her best performance and what Francis gets out of her just through very small movements and everything in this film is small and quiet Mm. And that mm. maybe went against it because I I'm I'm the same as you. I honestly thought at least Kate, probably Francis, maybe Sersha, um, and to see it left out of both conversations, I found very 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 surprising and quite disappointing. Yeah, and you know that there should be a place for for films like this. It is reserved, and some people I've seen a couple of people comment on finding it cold. 
And for me, that just fundamentally misunderstands what this film Mm. is doing. As with Francis's first film, it is a study of isolation and alienation. And the way he captures that through performance, through writing, through lack of exposition, but through cinematography as well. He, for me, tells a complete story in that sense. And there is an an incredibly strong line between both of his films. Um, So it is a massive disappointment, I think. And I still can't quite, even when I think I've got a handle on it, I'm like, well, it's quite quiet. It's quite still, still doesn't quite explain it for me at all. In comparison to God's Own Country, do you see it as very much a companion piece? Do you see it as as an evolution of that movie? How do you feel it compares in terms of quality? I think it's... I'll be honest. I liked it a tiny bit less, um, but I really, really loved God's Own Country. I just, I just, I find it incredibly moving. And I don't know if, I don't know if having stars worked against it. Maybe you know, we we didn't really know. Josh O'Connor had been in a couple of things, but that was really his big breakthrough moment. We didn't really know those guys. They they were able to completely disappear into those roles. Maybe the fact that we know who Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan are has somehow colored reaction to this I don't know but but it, I did I did find it a little bit not less effective I still thought it was really good but just it, I I loved it instantly a little bit less than God's Own Country so maybe maybe it's being graded on a curve next to that incredible film I don't know and maybe that's what's kind of counted against it I think it's an evolution in terms of craft and maybe Mm. kind of, when I say scale, I mean scale of ambition as as opposed to literal scale of the film. Mm -hmm. And he has, I think there's a real confidence in this. There's a rawness in God's Own Country, which I think works incredibly well. It is his first film. You know, he got help from the BFI. It wasn't a massive budget those guys, as you say, were completely unknown. That was entirely his script. That was a passion project he'd had this burning desire to make. And I think you feel that in the film. I think it's incredibly, the rawness of it, I think is what makes it so powerful. Mm. And there's arguably something more polished about Ammonite, no pun intended. (laughs) But I I kind of see that as a maturation of him as a filmmaker, some of those edges being knocked off. But and even though, you know, they're both queer love stories in, in quite different ways, I think if you asked Francis, oh, I did ask, I did ask Francis. If you asked Francis, <laughs> hypothetically, like I did in the interview that you might have just listened to, oh, he, he, he wouldn't classify necessarily his work that way. He sees it as a story of class. Class is incredibly important to yeah. Francis. Class mm. and gender, how those two things intersect class and sexuality. When God's Own Country came out, everybody called it Brokeback Mountain set in Yorkshire. And that drove me fucking mad because it's so reductive. If mm-hmm. a queer filmmaker makes a film about a queer love story and that's what it instantly becomes. Whereas if you asked him, he'd say, God's Own Country is a love story that happens to be between two men, but it's a film concerned with class and it's a film concerned with isolation. And those, mm-hmm. I think, are the dominant themes of both films. Yeah. Mary Annin's class is incredibly important to the story. Absolutely. And there's also, a, I think, a, an element of both movies of this really bleak, harsh landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, uh, the Yorkshire landscape in God's Own Country, of course, and uh, and the coastline of Lyme Regis. I mean, neither movie looked like a picnic to shoot, <laughs> I have to say. Um, and in this one, this, 
I think when you said Terry that uh, some criticism of the movie has been that it's cold, it lo- I, I don't necessarily yeah. it looks physically cold. I yeah. don't necessarily know that it that pertains to the emotional heart of the film. Mm. We'll get to that in a second, of course. But it looks like a cold movie. It it feels like he's almost deliberately chosen this 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 palette that is drained of color. It feels mm. very very blue. There's a moment where Charlotte gets into the 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 sea that looks like when Saoirse Ronan is in the sea being swept over by a wave. It looks like it's the coldest anyone's ever been in the history of cinema, and I include the making of the thing in that. It's it's absolutely wild, and that's something that he's clearly interested in as well, in yeah. how people are defined by and maybe even trying to overcome the, the, the bleakness of the landscape on which they find themselves. I, th- I think it's, yeah, it's a stand-in for their environment. If you're in a harsh environment... You know, like me on the most, maybe this is too obvious, but like uh, as an emotional metaphor, you're in a harsh environmental, emotionally, you're also in this harsh environment physically. So you've got, you know, those boys on the side of a hill trying to keep warm in Yorkshire, and you've got, you know, these people on this wind blasted beach trying to keep warm or in Saoirse's case mm. trying to keep her pretty dress clean you know it just like it's instantly gives you an idea that they find life difficult and that things are not mm. easy for them and not comfortable and they're struggling to kind of get by and, and it kind of externalizes this whole defensiveness and and wariness that they have and and you know difficulty that they have finding warmth emotionally um i guess so i, I think it's also like crazy beautiful like I, you know it it looks harsh but but beautiful in both cases oh i thought you meant it's like the film crazy beautiful it's oh just, no it's <laughs> it's very much not like that no no yeah it didn't really remind me of that at all um the opening shot i mean let's talk i think first about this the 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 themes of gender and the themes of class uh, before we talk about the love story. And I think it's very much there in the opening shot, in the opening sequence. The opening shot of the movie is a woman scrubbing a floor in a museum. And she's told to get out of the way for, for a couple of blokes who could easily go around her. And uh, and then it's uh, then they have the, the fossil that, that Mary Annine has discovered. Uh, and then we immediately have a bit of erasure where the label that she has attached to a saying, found by Mary Annine, is completely taken away and mm. some great harumphing great big bloke takes credit for it so it's it's pretty much set out right there that mary annine was a, a real fossil finder she was a real paleontologist and she struggled for recognition in her own lifetime and it's all right there in the in the opening few seconds no that is uh, it's an incredibly effective visual way of conveying that i think it's first of all it's really really elegant storytelling uh, but also like this is what happens you know i mean not to like harp on about my book or anything but like Women, it's not that women never achieved anything, it's that their achievements were literally written out of history. So, you know, a lot of the art, for example, that we have that is just anonymous, there is a fair to good chance that that art was done by a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not anonymous because we don't know, it's anonymous because someone wiped out the credits. And that goes right up to the present day. So, you know, this this is not an old or a new phenomenon. This has been going on for the whole length of the patriarchy. And Mary Anning was was a huge victim of this. Like she was someone who had been working on these fossils all her life. Her her, her father had started it before her. Her brother did it as well a little bit. And so she she learned these things. She had taught herself these things. She had gone through books and painstakingly copied out these things, copied out diagrams. She had done dissections on modern animals to learn what it was she was looking at in fossils. I mean, she was incredibly dedicated, self educated, autodidactic 
heroine, scientist. Mm. But the mm. Geological Society at that point didn't admit women and certainly wouldn't have admitted a working class woman. So she was she had two strikes against her everywhere she went. And the interesting thing about her life as you, as you read about it is that everyone did recognize that she was something special. Everyone did know that her work was unique. And yet they still took advantage of her work and claimed it as their own. You know, she was mm. she would still sell these fossils for half of what they would then be sold on for by other people. She still had regularly to have friends basically, you know, institute sort of drives to help her out and almost charitable efforts, which can't have been yeah. something that she was terribly happy about, but it was what she had to do. And and there is evidence in her letters of her feeling burned by this and her feeling, you know, untrusting of people because so many people had taken advantage of her work for their own reputations because she was not in a position to claim it for herself. So yeah, anyway, patriarchy, yeah. bad, is what patriarchy bad. And I tell you, it's very good you brought that up actually about the erasure of of, of women who've, who've done these incredible achievements, whether it's in the field of art or the field of paleontology in this case. You can read all about this in my new book, Women versus Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, which is available right now in all good and evil books. Stores. Um, Thanks, Chris. I've just yeah. got a, a shitload of tipex. I've just got to go to Waterstones when we open, <laughs> and then it's mine, Helen. It's all mine. Just redirect the royalties to me. Oh, uh, royalties, Terry. bless you. <laughs> yes, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Terry. What's, what's your take on on that as well? And also the the use of 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 Mary Annie. Uh, the fact that you know that Francis hasn't created a, whole, a new character out of whole cloth. Uh, he has, but it's also not a Mary Annie biopic in that way no so he's he's been always been very keen to point out that he, he has no interest in making a biopic and actually his fascination with the erasure is what led to this film so he was um buying a wanted to buy a fossil as a gift for somebody and he said everywhere he looked this name kept coming up mary anning mary anning and he was like why have i not heard of this woman who to helen's point was clearly the very best at what she did and the more he researched about her i think the more furious he got that this woman who was incredibly talented wasn't even necessarily that wasn't recognized in her lifetime but men just took credit for it she did have to sell things for way less the value than than they were worth and this is where class becomes important because mm -hmm. The reason she has to do that is because she has to support herself. In the film, she has to support her mother, played by Gemma Jones. Mm. And those very real um, economic concerns are what, in some ways, mean she has to accept that erasure in her lifetime. But I think Francis kind of had the basic biographical details. But, you know, obviously, um, Charlotte Murchison um, was a real person. She was older than Mary Anning. The ages have been changed. Mm. Mm. But he was, he took that as an inspiration. And, and there's been a lot of debate online about the fact that there is no proof that Mary Anning had a relationship with a woman. And it's it's fairly mad when you think about it because fictional heterosexual relationships are invented in culture all of the time. Mm -hmm. People who we know certain biographical things about them will invent relationships, will invent lovers, will in invent all of these things. And it only becomes a problem when we say that that person is in, may have been in a same-sex relationship. And Francis is very clear on this, which is if you have a history created and told by the patriarchy, essentially, which means white straight men, 
then of course that that is always going to be the norm is going to be heterosexuality but why could we not presume that she had a same sex relationship we know she had friendships with women that was very clear in the letters that she sent there's no proof she had a relationship with a man and the reality is that if he'd have invented a a relationship with a man nobody would have said how dare you assume she's heterosexual there's no proof she ever had a relationship with a man so it's fairly mad to me in some respects that in you know 2021 we have to have conversations about you know whether it's not us having these conversations but people online are having the conversation about whether it's right for francis to assume that or to include that in a essentially a fictional version of her life he felt that he wanted to give her the story he thought she deserved he wanted to give her credit for her work but it's also just his kind of imagination of of a story that that she could have lived mm. so i i haven't listened back to the interview yet because i haven't i haven't edited yet what what you said to francis did you because i i find it interesting that he has chosen to to depict marianne and then created this relationship essentially i mean i think the, the phrase i keep seeing bandied around in reviews of this is and on wikipedia is a speculative uh, relationship between between mary and and charlotte what do you think about that in terms of does that take away the focus from mary annie's achievements and from her struggle in the field of of paleontology her struggle for recognition would that have made an interesting movie by itself without a relationship at at the center of things but she that that relationship brings the real tension and also why why shouldn't she enjoy love why shouldn't she enjoy sex why shouldn't she enjoy unlocking this this tenderness and warmth inside her if this mm -hmm. was again if this was a straight relationship we were talking about we wouldn't say did she really need to have sex with the man in that scene couldn't it just have been a nice story about her and her rocks that would not be a conversation <laughs> we were having. i i actually might i think i might i'll be honest like i am yeah i, I don't think no but i, I genuinely i i I, I actually like the relationship in this. I think it's great mm, to yeah. bring her passion for something else and not just her work, but it's a way also of like illustrating that she was a passionate person, which I think is important as, as regards her work. So I think it adds something mm. to the story to have this. But I think I would object to a, ma a male f fantasy lover as well, because I just don't think romance is the only thing. And I think there's maybe something to be said for, like, I really love films about intense friendships. And I don't think we have yeah. enough of those. So I would actually be okay with it. But I, I think for me, because it's a story of, of Francis is concerned with the study of isolation. And mm. I don't know how mm. far you get in a study of isolation if it's purely work focused or he's, he's interested. And I think you see this in God's own country with the parts of us that can become revealed by certain relationships. Mm. And, you know, I think there are very still very few queer love stories told yeah. on yeah, screen. That's true. And, and what he wanted to portray also, and I think this is important, is it was it's not where sexuality causes suffering. Sexuality isn't the issue. Like in God's own country, <laughs> they were two two men who happened to fall in love and actually class was the bigger issue. There's a the weird Brexit spectre in those scenes in the pub. And the fact that, you know, their their sexuality doesn't there's no big tragedy at the end. It's it's just given parity in a way that I think's really 
mm. important. And I, I, I really love their relationship and I love what it brings to Mary and, and the way we see her subtly change, not entirely radically change. Cause I mm. think to your mm. point, Helen, this, this, this notion of the completely transformative nature of romantic love is something mm. we see a lot, but we see her change in subtle and really interesting ways and i i yeah. really liked seeing that on screen and i thought the sex scene i've just let's just cut to the sex scene chase i thought that sex scene was handled fucking brilliantly the yeah. least <laughs> no, male no pun intended yeah <laughs> yeah well the least male gazy leery pervy mm. Female sex scene, I can remember seeing. It was real. It was raw. Bits of it were kind of not difficult to watch, but it's very aggressive, very kind of, there's no kind of subtlety about it. But actually, I loved that contrast after after this quietness and this stillness to see this passion and physical expression Mm. of passion explode literally all over the room. Mm. I beg your pardon. (laughs) Yeah. I I loved I loved that moment of release in the film. No, I, I, this was look. Honestly, I think I think the love story in this in this is is really well played, and I I absolutely agree. We don't have enough queer love stories in cinema, so we need more. What I am saying is, I I would object to a straight relationship being invented as well, just because I I don't think I think there are other relationships that could work here, but I mm. I do really like this one, um, and I love that the way that it's. This, the sort of slow build of them coming together and finding common ground and finding something in each other for their respective hurts. And then that, I mean, that scene in the bedroom in London at the end is just, it's like they're they're talking at completely cross purposes. Charlotte is just so clueless about what she's suggesting, about what she's, she's, she's got everything figured out in her mind and she hasn't thought about anything, you know, and it's, it's an incredible piece of writing Mm. and of performance. It's, I think it's just, it's one of those portrayals of where you think you absolutely understand a situation and you're utterly wrong and it is brilliantly played by both of them and heartbreaking for it. And, and it's interesting because I was asking Francis about that and the final scene because I think mm. both are open to interpretation as to why Mary rejects this setup that Charlotte's kind of created. To me, it was she was it's kind of a quite a heteronormative setup in terms of you know she polite society and and actually kind of putting Mary in a place she was desperately uncomfortable with. She loved her work; her work was everything. She was being taken away from that and put in this in this gorgeous house where they could kind of carry on their relationship in a more discreet manner. And I felt she kind of violently reacted to that and then the ending that final shot when they mm. connect when their eyes connect and the first time I saw that I burst into tears because I I saw that as the moment that they knew it couldn't work where yeah. the distance was too great and then Francis was saying he thought it was maybe more optimistic than that and I've watched it since and I'm thinking well actually is that them thinking they can work I've, I've been backwards and forwards on that ending I, f- I felt like it was them at least reaching some kind of understanding I think that's Charlotte realizing exactly why it wouldn't work as she had suggested but I think there is yeah there's there's almost like a crack in the door like there's something open to at least a continuing something yes. I guess you know until, I don't you take, know until you take to Wikipedia and realize that Mary Anning died at 47 yeah and yes. <laughs> just like so yes. whatever ending you have in your head, a really, really sad thing happened in real yeah, life. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more 
optimistic about the ending. I see that there's some sort of reconciliation there. It's it's is it uh, is it um, important that they're they're bonding or their 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 eyes are meeting, for example, over that fossil that we saw being uh, the attribution of which we saw taken away from from Mary at the beginning of the film. Is that is that important? Is that relevant? Is that symbolic? Big old symbolism there. <laughs> I I think there's there's a sense that Francis doesn't ever allow you to forget that her work is everything to Mary and that mm-hmm. actually I suppose I suppose actually bearing in mind what Helen was saying earlier that it isn't seen as you know this actually becomes unimportant in relation to the fact that I've now got myself a girlfriend um mm-hmm. to put it very crassly but <laughs> I I think he's always keen he's always keen to remind you how much it meant to her and how important it was to her and and that it wasn't a thing to be replaced and it wasn't a thing she was doing while love came along. Mm. It was something that was the foundation of her entire life that she was incredibly proud of yeah. and that she essentially fought all her life to be recognized for and wasn't. And I think in a way it's, it's maybe his attempt to give her that recognition. Mm-hmm. Did you know, by the way, that Mary Anning uh, lost her pet dog? Yes, in a in a rock slide. I was reading about this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Poor poor guy. And she was rumored to have been struck by lightning, and that's yes. why she was called Lightning Mary. <laughs> I was like, put that in the film. I want the bit where she's struck by lightning. Yeah, I was reading about this. She was well, a baby. I think that makes it. You know that film with Reese Witherspoon where she gets struck by lightning. <laughs> Sweet Home Isn't Alabama. Sweet home, sweet home Alabama. Alabama. Yes. Okay. That, that would make basically Ammonite Sweet Home Alabama if she'd have been struck by lightning. Wow. Well, she's like she's basically proto Indiana Jones, isn't she? And so many ways. <laughs> oh, God. Indiana Jones meets Ross from Friends. Uh, yeah, her dog. Her dog was Trey. Trip her and, Trey. Uh, and he was crushed uh, when some um, when some land gave way underfoot and nearly killed Mary Annin as well. Um. This is an unconnected point, but just something I'd like to say for the record. Like, I would really genuinely be very interested in a film about the fossil hunters, the rival fossil hunters in the US around this same time, who were basically like, they, they were the first ones to kind of go into the badlands and, and start digging up fossils on a big scale. And they got incredibly competitive and basically started like messing up each other's digs and trying to steal fossils from each other and hiding where they were going and trying to send people in the other opposite direction like it there was some shenanigans is what i'm saying and uh it would have been quite cool because this is adam sandler's next movie on netflix isn't it this is it's him it's david spade i mean he's already a spade he can dig dig for he can dig in the joe dirt oh my god it's joe dirt oh Oh, no oh wait joe dirt and billy madison oh my god they're back after all these years we get rob schneider in there to go you can do it halfway through oh it writes itself and Many of those Probably Adam Sandler will. movies too. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait to spoil a special the shit out of that movie that we've just made up. Anyway, um, anything else you want to say about about Ammonite? Anything else that 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 really stood out for you? The, the relationship with with her mother Gemma Jones—that's interesting. Mm. And again, I mean, my God, that's a that's a tough life. That's a tough life. Ten kids, eight dead. Wow. Yeah, I mean that was pretty average for the time. You know. Not great, but but not unheard of, um, which is horrific. Um, yeah. But but yeah, it, it's I don't know. I, I feel like we've we don't talk enough about that kind of um, multi generational caring. You know, we don't. It's not a thing that films 
come to quite often. It, we don't dwell on it. I think we're still uncomfortable about it as a society. So I thought that worked pretty well, really. Mm. Yeah. Really well acted as well. I mean, just yeah, all, I mean, the way, all, all across the board. <laughs> uh, Terry, what's what's your what stands out for you about this movie? What's your what's your favourite component? Don't know why I said that so dramatically, but there you go. <laughs> it's it's a couple of things for me. It's, as I said before, Kate Winslet's performance I just mm. think is extraordinary. Like she didn't move like Kate Winslet. She didn't speak. I understand she's an actor, by the way, but <laughs> it was so it was so unrecognizably Winslet in any form I'd seen on screen. The mm. lack of complete vanity, just the the way she changed her physicality, the just the little she moved in every single movement had intent and had meaning and mm. added something to the narrative because the other thing I love most was Francis's confidence in the writing of this mm-hmm. because he avoided exposition he avoided actually huge amounts of dialogue to give voice to what he was trying to put across through performance and I think especially a director on their second film I think that takes a massive amount of confidence, a massive amount of self-belief. I know that Kate was very supportive with him in terms of making sure his vision for both the film and the character ended up on screen. But those two things, for me, just make it really special. And I think it's it absolutely just, for me, it's one of the films of the year. And a a just a really great number two after God's Own Country. I can't I can't wait to see what he does next in the similar vein. I imagine yeah. isolation, all of these things are going to be mm. subjects he's obsessed with throughout his entire filmmaking career. Maybe he'll make that movie with Adam Sandler and. I mean, after Schneider. listening to this, <laughs> yeah. why wouldn't he? Quite why frankly, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you know, listen. Francis, if you are listening to this, I apologise for everything. But uh, if if you are, maybe maybe you know, stick some lols in the next one. I, I respect <laughs> you as an artist. I think these films are fantastic. But I mean, wow, <laughs> they're not, they're not they're not gag fests, are they? I mean, not everything needs to be an Adam Sandler movie, Chris. But yeah, but, uh, we've I talked mean, about fair. this, Helen. Yeah, and you know right. how I feel about this. I know, I know. Yeah. I, even as I said it, I realised I was wrong. Uh, so maybe some lols. That's all I'm saying. Um, uh, just very quickly as well, it was good to see uh, Alec Sekarenu. Mm. Uh, I probably mispronounced his name very, very badly. Uh, I think I got the first name right, but apologies to Alec if I have indeed butchered his surname. Good to see him back uh, yeah. as well in this in this smaller supporting role as uh, Doctor Lieberson. But, but still, such yeah. a nice one and and, and so much warmth because I feel like you know, especially with this this incredibly guarded lead character and and this incredibly you know grieving supporting character and a difficult mother. Like you need some unadulterated warmth in there and, and and a sort of a really good person and it was it was nice to see him play that role favorite scene before we wrap up favorite scene it was the first for me it was the the walk they take together on the beach with with charlotte in her pretty white dress and mary just sort of side-eyeing her the whole way i thought that was great the pissing <laughs> well actually no i take that back there's there is a to, to your point chris there's, there's a bleakness of the of the early shots and then there's a, a shot where they are on the beach together and the sun 
breaks through yes. and bounces off the waves and it just took my breath away. And we should probably, you know, pay tribute to, well, he's not died, but we should mention uh, <laughs> Stéphane Fontaine, who was the cinematographer, yeah. who is an incredible DOP and just actually that scene for me just sucker punched me. I just thought mm-hmm. it was such a brilliant use of light, bearing in mind the tone that had been established for so long throughout this film and to have that break in the clouds and that break of light coming through, it was just so simple, but so incredibly effective. Mm. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. And uh, I think on that note, that will be that. Will be at. That is a, a very, very good note on which to end. I think, though, if you're going to pay tribute to anybody, Terry, it should be me uh, for somehow getting through this podcast, um, talking about a film in which two fossil hunters make love and not using the phrase they got their rocks off i think i deserve some sort of medal so close. for that so close. i was going to say it's almost like you almost did it but didn't quite like you I, can't have you know, the chufty badge for almost <laughs> doing it a, sorry a chufty badge you can't have hell? a chufty you What's can't a chufty have a chufty badge, badge. A, chufty What's a, badge? Chufty badge? a chufty badge is what you give somebody um, when it's like when somebody does something that they should have done anyway and they think they deserve praise. Are you, you from Royston like Faisy? It's, it's, like, it's like if you turn up to the to the meetings on time in the morning. Right, yeah. And you're like, oh, look <laughs> well, at me, I'm yeah. here on time. And I go, yes. oh, my God, what do you want, a chufty badge? Like, <laughs> how, you, you, how long have you been an emperor now? Five years? <laughs> Five I've heard half. every uh, five and a half. Who's counting? I, I've I've never heard you say chufty badge before. You were going to say, and I've never turned up to a meeting on yeah. time. <laughs> obviously, obviously, there's that. But, I've definitely but said also, chufty badge in your direction. Chufty badge. If you have, I thought that you had missaid tufty, as in the tufty club. Do you know what the tufty club is? No. Is this a Northern Irish thing, was or is this crossing just the road was crossing the, the road? Club, wasn't it? Yeah. It's like it's the it crossing, you know, t- yeah. teaching young kids to Maybe cross the road. Maybe this is why Chufty Badge sounds familiar to me, but it does sound familiar. Yeah. I think I've heard that yeah. phrase before. Yeah. Okay. It, but it's anyway. from the um, it's from the same lexicon family as uh, Chuddy. Chuddy. Oh, I do love a bit of Chuddy. 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 What is it? Oh, Chewing gum. Chewing gum. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Welcome Learned to Royston Faisy. You'll never leave. <laughs> But anyway, that's not just saying. I just think I deserve I deserve a medal because uh, I managed to show some fortitude in the face of from overwhelming innuendo, and I managed to uh, I managed to say no because I'm a bigger man. I'm so proud wow. of you. So so proud, so proud. Uh, anyway, now we paid proper respect to Ammonite. It is that is it for our spoiler special on this beautiful and affecting and emotional film. Uh, our next spoiler special is also about a beautiful and emotional and affecting film. It is Godzilla versus Kong. Terry, what's your opinion again? Just to remind the people. Shite. There we go. But <laughs> Terry clearly works for Apex, not Monarch. <laughs> And uh, we'll be discussing that film on our next Porter special, along with the film's director, Adam Wingard. Sorry, Adam. Yeah, so sorry about everything. Um, and as ever, thank you so much for subscribing to our Sporter special channel. Uh, it really does mean a lot to us and makes podcasts like this possible. You may regret that I said that after <laughs> after listening to the last 45 minutes or so. But uh, until again, until again, until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion. It is goodbye from Squadcast Name, The Lost World, Jurassic Coast, Helen O'Hara. Doodaloo. It is goodbye from Mary Anning versus the Patriarchy, all in caps, <laughs> Terry White. Bye.
as goodbye from me, also all in caps, fossil slash Ferdin. I think that's pretty clever, right? Mm-hmm. That's pretty, yeah? No? Yeah, no, it's fossil Ferdin. Yeah, I got it. It's a, it's a, right. it's a reference. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm off to uh, work on my Adam Sandler, David oh, Spade, Rob Schneider comedy about Trey, Mary Annin's dog that fell off a cliff. Ah, Trey, we never knew you. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.